Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and I'd like to tell you about a great podcast called Philosophical Disquisitions. It's hosted by John Danaher. On the show, he talks to many experts about the interaction of technology and humanity. He has a ton of great episodes, and it's easy to find. It's on Apple Podcasts, or you can find it simply by typing Philosophical Disquisitions into Google. It'll come right up. We really love this podcast, and in fact, we love it so much that we're going to give you a little sample of what you'll find there. The following episode is republished from Philosophical Disquisitions. I hope you enjoy it. So my guest today is Phoebe Moore. Phoebe is a researcher and a senior lecturer in international relations at Middlesex University. She teaches international relations and international political economy, and she has published several books, articles, and reports about labor struggle, industrial relations, and the impact of technology on workers' everyday lives. Her current research, which is funded by a British Academy Leverhulme Award, focuses on the use of self-tracking devices in companies. She is the author of several papers on this topic and is publishing a book entitled The Quantified Self in Precarity, Work, Technology, and What Counts that is due out in autumn of 2017 and is published by Routledge. So uh, welcome to the show, Phoebe. Hello, thank you. Thanks for having me. So I'm glad you could join me today for this conversation, and I want to use the opportunity to focus on some of the research you've been doing on the quantified worker or the quantified workplace. Yep. Now, I think most of the listeners to this particular podcast will be conscious of the surveillance and tracking powers of modern technology. Most of us carry devices on our persons that can track various sets of data about our everyday lives. Some of us embrace this, and some of us are more wary. What's interesting and important about your work, I think, is how you focus on this trend towards increased self-tracking and, uh, in the workplace and how it affects us as workers both in and outside of the workplace and also the consequences that this has at a political and personal level. So I'm hoping mm-hmm. we can touch upon all of this in the remainder of our discussion. Sure. So let me just open with a, a broad question. Your work deals with the quantified self-movement phenomenon, mm. specifically mm. in the workplace, but maybe you could start talking about that quantified self-movement more generally. Where does it come mm. from and what's its underlying ethos and philosophy? Um, well, thanks, John. So probably in the early 2000s, I guess, is where the quantified self-movement or community really started to develop. So what you found were um, lots of people started using new types of devices. It was sort of wearable technologies that started entering the market. So what I say is that people were doing this to get to know their autonomic selves I'll talk about that in a second. What happened in the sort of early 2000s, Kevin Kelly, he was the executive and founding editor of Wired magazine, along with a friend, colleague Gary Wolf, he's one of the writers for the magazine, um, and a few other people in Silicon Valley, started to to discuss their own experiences with using these kinds of new devices and looking at what the significance was. And they were doing this for self-optimization is kind of what we're calling it. And so the technologies themselves, this is with the use of Bluetooth, triangulation algorithms, infrared sensors, and these kinds of things. The types of products are called fuel band, Fitbit, uh, body media armband. You'll have heard of some of these that are still being used. But really in the discussions that emerged, uh, the meetups that they started to have, It became a kind of a new social movement on the horizon, really, where self-knowledge through numbers is the driving mantra. So the first of their kind of conferences, I guess, that the steering group launched this in 2007 in San Francisco. And and I think what's interesting, some of the uh, publicity that led up to the event was something that I quote, actually, in the book. Kevin says, uh, real change, he's looking at real change that will happen in individuals as they work towards self-knowledge of one's body, mind and spirit. It's a rational path, he said. Um, unless something can be measured, it cannot be improved. So that was really the type of 
um, ethos that went into the the origin of the the movement or community. And so at the first conference, Kelly was looking for projects, and it's it's in the uh, publicity for the event, looking for projects that might sort of look at personal genome sequencing, life logging, measuring your chemical body load count, self-experimentation types of things, location tracking as well, digitizing your body info, uh, sharing health records, uh, psychological self-assessment, medical self-diagnostics. So there's a kind of psychological, medical self-improvement dimension to it. Um, in one of the subsequent conferences, 2014, just to give you an idea of the uh, the types of things that are discussed, quantifying motivation with a smartwatch, photo life logging, grief and mood tracking. So it goes into all the these different avenues. Um, the meetup group talks about itself on its own website as a kind of a show and tell for people who are taking advantage of various kinds of personal tracking. Again, this movement in 2015, actually, I went along to one of the conference. Actually, this is the first one I went to it was an expo. So they do an expo and a conference. The conference happens in Amsterdam, the expos in, um, in the U.S., so what, what happens at the expo and actually at the conference, they have show and tell, they have breakaways, they have office hours. During show and tell, people um, go into a kind of a main stage area and they talk about their own self-experiments and, and, and their own experiences and what they've learned. Breakaways are where the themes that have emerged are sort of discussed. It's a talking shop. People show up, talk about why they're there, what they came for, that kind of stuff. Um, the one I just went to in the breakaways, for example, this is in Amsterdam, I went to the conference. Um, the themes were things like anxiety and quantified self, quantified work uh, is the one, of course, that I do. Corporate wellness was one of them. One of the breakaways was on quantified body. And the one I went to in San Francisco, I actually led the breakaway on quantified worker. Um, the next one is office hours. So people sell their own products in the industry uh, at the events. So if you want to know the kinds of sessions that, that I went to in Amsterdam, again, the anxiety one, uh, one of the show and tells was, does biofeedback help improve focus and meditation? In terms of breakouts, you have self-tracking versus self-surveillance. Um, and one uh, with some people from Denmark on uh, the body and quantified self. So really, it's a mixture of self-optimizing, self-reflection, talks, stories and shares and things like this. So there's a lot of health and fitness, well-being, wellness, that kind of stuff, mindfulness. But one of the sub-themes, for example, in the breakaways I just mentioned, was productivity and work context. So in about 2013, I started to write my book, the one that's coming out in a couple of months. Um, in terms of the movement's ethos and philosophy, the way I talk about it, um, in terms of the autonomic uh, self, the, the kind of discovery of this. So what is autono autonomic? This refers to uh, the nervous system of a physiological self. Uh, this is where mind, sentiment, body are kind of inseparable, less separable than mainstream Cartesian modernism uh, would sort of dictate, which is the, you know, the modernist way of thinking about, about being. So autonomic means self-governing, comes from the Greek auto or self plus nomos, which is law. Um, so through intensive and long-term sort of data collection, as seen in quantified movement, quantified self-movement, and advocated there, people begin to sort of pursue the autonomic self-knowledge, their own autonomic self-knowledge to improve ourselves. A little bit confused about the terminology there because Go ahead. the autonomic nervous system is a particular part of the body. So it's obviously, it's not tracking of that. It's that you're, you're referring more to autonomy, the self, self-legislation or self-control. Um, that. Absolutely. I mean, I use the term somewhat provocatively to to give it this, and and that's part of what makes it a a new something new there. That that it's the not known, the autonomic self that that's talked about uh, in kind of medical literature. This is a thing that has to be discovered because it's not immediately evident. So, it's a kind of gain gaining the more intimate knowledge, so to speak, 
the internal that in order to control, modify, regulate it to understand that. It's what something called like an identity proxy in a way, if you will, to control, improve and develop it or something Rutkenstein, for example, talks about is as a data double, if you've read that one. So it's a constant sort of self-improvement dimension, getting to know something that was not already knowable. So that's how I kind of use the term. Uh, I mean, a couple of questions that arise mm-hmm. from this. First, on the, the, the focus on anxiety that you mentioned a couple of times at, at these yeah. uh, conferences and expos, is that focusing on the, the ways in which QS devices can alleviate anxiety or is it focusing on how they may promote anxiety or maybe a bit of both? Oh, well, it's interesting you say, should say that because it was one of the more interesting of the breakaways. Yeah, and uh, it was a colleague from New York University who who ran it. She basically was looking at it in terms of, yeah, it's, it's, the pl- it's a platform discussion. So people bring to the table what, you know, and, and my question really was uh, in that discussion very much linked to why we are starting to self-track in this way. And is there a kind of social anxiety around that? So if it's a fairly sort of recent phenomenon, how I've looked at it, it's the kind of question of how we are able to work given, you know, issues socially. So that's rising unemployment, underemployment, zero hours contracts, kind of gig work, so to speak. The fact we can't rely anymore on life like lifelong employment. So there's an anxiety that kind of comes about. And so there's that kind of paradox of we're doing something to to control maybe this type of anxiety, to manage ourselves as it were. But then the difference between knowing that self, what happens in the workplace is that you're not only doing this individually as it were, you've got an employment relationship. So what does it mean when the technology becomes almost a kind of a, a manager itself? So that's the way that I talk about it. And why, where does that come from? A rise in sedentarism, for example, the fact that we're sitting in front of a computer all day, is that healthy for the body? Da, da, da. In terms of our own productivity, if we're not healthy, can we continue to work? So that's the kind of social anxiety that maybe we're responding to, but that might be more at an individual level. What happens when we're asked to self-track? Um, that's something else, I guess, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting there that the, the, there's a general culture of anxiety, maybe specifically around work, which we'll come back to later on, which is fueling this quest for more self-knowledge and self-control and self-optimization and improvement, which is really at the heart of the quantified self-movement. I just want to maybe just draw a line under a couple of things you said before we move on forward for people who are listening, which is that the quantified self-movement as characterized there clearly get the sense that it's, it's not just about tracking, it's about experimentation with hmm. the self, something yeah. you mentioned a couple of times. And the other thing, which I often include in discussions of the quantified self, is the focus on the gamification of everyday life. Mm. Um, I, mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, I mean, and how prevalent that kind of gamification ethos is in the quantified mm. self-movement. Again, what I tend to look at is the work side of it. So gamification does play a role. And what I'll say in terms of uh, the workplace, for example, that I researched in the Netherlands. So when different devices were introduced, I mean, this is something that people were quite excited about, that they, you know, that there was a community building aspect, that it was something that, that sort of made work more fun, quote unquote. So gamification kind of takes everyday kind of what we're used to interactions. And again, in the workplace, this might be that we have to sort of work in a team and this kind of stuff. So to, to give it that gamified dimension means different things. But Let's talk about it in the, the context of, of the project I looked at. So, you know, and Jawbone Up is one of the devices that, that allows you to do this. You basically can create teams. You can, you know, eh, kind of aggregate your steps in order to, to say that your team has, let's say, climbed Mount Everest. So you become 
kind of in a way and and it's been it's been looked at as a very positive thing i mean if if there's a critical dimension does it increase competition so one of the things i got from the project that i that i researched uh was there were there were employees who said well look you know we already know this person is a marathon runner so we can never actually compete quote unquote so the the you know what it can lead to is not necessarily something so enthusiast enthusiasm generating or something like this but yeah, gamification is definitely an aspect of it, that it sort of commodifies aspects that we didn't already do, as it were. So, yeah, that's kind of how my research has looked at that that side of it. Yeah, we'll come back to the research you did in the, in the Dutch company later sure. on in more detail. Yeah. So there was another question that uh, occurred to me there. Oh, yeah. Just, so just your sense at these conferences, and I, I've never been to one, so I'm not sure what they're mm-hmm. like. Are they, is it a pretty diverse spectrum of opinion about the quantified self, or is it mainly kind of boosters and promoters of the technology or you know what's the breakdown i would say the expo and the conference are i'm very very glad i went to both of them they're a little different from each other which i I don't think i predicted so uh, the expo there were more let's say products being proselytized and kind of you know there were a lot of uh, tables with these really interesting possible new kind of startups or or ones that already exist and they're they're sort of telling you all about them. So there's in in that sense there's a, a kind of um I guess a market that's emerged in that sense. But then at the conference there was a little more reflection um, discussion. I mean I named some of them already for you so that things that are studied in other in disciplines. So maybe there's a more academic side, which is interesting because I think it's when you get sort of practitioners, users and the sort of supposed thinkers into the same room. I think it just says something about society now, and that's really where I come in, is to look at the picture in terms of of work and what it means for work in social life today. Yeah, so let's move on to the discussion of of quantification in the workplace. And let's start with maybe the history of this. And this is something you've observed, I think, in in your written work as well, which is that the idea of workplace quantification is, is nothing new and really since the dawn of capitalism, employers have been tracking and controlling workers. And in a sense, that's part of the inherent logic of capitalism. So, yeah, I guess maybe you could talk a little bit about that history, about where this comes from and how the quantified self-movement then connects with these deeper trends. Sure, sure, sure. Actually, uh, it's chapter two of the book. Well, I look at the kind of work design experimentation uh, in, in, in a set of phases. So I start with industrial betterment. That's more during industrialization, and then to the current phase that I call agility management systems. But throughout those, there are different phases, um, and the use of technology uh, might be different in each of them. But I I focus a little bit in in scientific management in that chapter because um, it's the kind of control phase, as I call it, it, uh, where work measurement technologies advanced a bit more than in any previous uh, years. So it was scientific management then. It's introduced by, of course, Taylor and the Gilbreths. Um, and they were introducing, in fact, they were developing similar types of methods at the time without knowing each other until they met actually at one of Taylor's lectures, um, but in the steel and bricklaying industries, respectively. So they were looking to identify, as the Gilbreths called it, the kind of one best way for workers uh, to work in order to be most efficient um, and also scientifically accurate in their movement in order to develop in the the best way, the quickest way, the most efficient way. So, but it was really seen as an American initiated civilizing process in in the time frame that it that it emerged. That sort of the interwar period. It was heralded as a kind of management methodology, as it were, that inter- would introduce sort of rationality and standardization. At the same time as, and I, I think a lot of people don't really know this as well, as well as prosperity and global interdependence. So there was a real 
uh, ethos that it was emerging around it that was kind of really heralded as something very positive. In fact, it was mentioned, it was researched across Europe. So in some of the archival research I looked at, uh, uh, the League of Nations really uh, there was a, a conference in Geneva where they discussed this, as I say, in a, uh, as a way to prevent, in, in fact, prevent future war. And so, so it was really one of these exciting moments in history. But in terms of of looking at it more philosophically and, and theoretically, so technology as a sort of an instrument of labor, this is something Marx talked about in in, in Das Kapital in Volume One, he called it a thing or a complex of things which the labor interposes between himself and yes, it's himself in the text and the subject of his labor and which serves as the conductor of his activity. So I think the idea is to capture that and to look at ways for productivity to, to be sort of most perfectly advanced and also for labor to be abstracted. That can be, so the technology could be mechanical, chemical or physical in the way that Marx talked about it. So in the, the, the argument in my book then is that the mechanics in the kind of labor process with technology being an instrument of labor becoming incre increasingly powerful in that sense. So, so management's always looked at technology to abstract labor, starting really with scientific management. But how I differentiate between that and now is that in a way, technology itself begins to play the role of management, as it were. Okay, so yeah, I mean, that, that was the next question, which is, is what is oh, yeah. actually different this time. So okay, you've, you've hinted at this, this deeper, longer history. So just give people the time frame here. Um, the Gilbreths and Taylor, they were writing and talking about this in what era, roughly? Oh, at the beginning of the last century. So sort of 1910, yeah, around then. When you're talking about the, the techniques of scientific management in the modern era and what's different this time, if anything, I, I mentioned to you in the correspondence I sent to you that I it could be technological differences and ideological differences. And I, I detect maybe both in the work that you've done. So maybe you could talk about the, the technological differences, um, hmm. the, like the kinds of data that, that can get captured. And yeah, like sure, 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 yeah. sure. Yeah. Now, at the beginning of the last century, uh, the devices that Taylor's and the Gobras were using uh, were, were different. I mean, there's cameras, something, okay, so similar, but different. So cameras for sort of uh, original kind of the inventions. So cameras, microchronometers, one of the things that was used, uh, this was developed uh, and actually developed for its precise use. And it, again, it's not a worn technology. One of the original distinctions that I make are that, that the technologies are always kind of outside of yourself. And it's when you begin to use it directly upon the body that it, it takes a slightly new and that's it's one of the differences so now we're obviously if we're talking about the autonomic self as i use it uh that it's something you know we we wouldn't know necessarily we wouldn't we wouldn't really make this placement so precisely about how fast let's say our heart is beating and how stressed we actually feel and if we have longitudinal data over time on when our hearts beat fastest so to speak so it's not the kind of thing that the taylor and the gilbreths were looking at that was much more the kind of movements and patterns around uh, for example, let's say in bricklaying, you know, Gilbreth, he went into the industry and he he was sort of surprised to learn, to, to see, because to, he started to watch the way the bricklayers were working. He's like, each person does it differently. Shouldn't they all do it exactly the same way? What what can be that way sort of thing? So the difference is that we've got technologies now where we can actually, that can actually be on the body and actually can track those types of things. There's the, let me give you another example of RFID, so radio frequency identifier uh, systems, which in fact were used to track cattle. Uh, when they're first used, this is a, a chip that's underneath the skin and your pets like a cat or a dog. So these are now being experimented with in uh, workplaces that, you know, you can sort of where are your workers in the factory or wh where are your workers in the office, so to speak, movement around the office. You can identify 
which is which may be the the best sort of pattern of movements in order to to achieve a specific task. Another one that's now being tracked or looked at: tone of voice can be recorded, and that's something with sociometric systems is what the the, the badge is called. So your movement around the office, as well as your tone of voice, as well as arm gestures, this kind of thing. So if you can put the data together, you can, again, look for patterns to see, okay, let's say this team are talking to a lot more to each other than, than the other team and their productivity statistics are a bit higher. These guys, you know, came up with this new invention. Is there something about the way that they spoke or the way that you see these kinds of, of possible measures? So it's a, it's a slightly different set of measures, new technologies, what's being looked for. I'd say, yeah, they, they differ quite significantly, but yet potentially uh, the ethos, there's a similarity in the ethos. It's the kind of achieve the perfect, you know, methods um, in order for productivity to be achieved. Yeah, right. kind of maximize the output and the efficiency of the corporate operations right. by tracking data. So, I mean, I think that's useful. So there's, you can see a continuum of sorts from the era of Taylor and Gilbreth's they were maybe looking for very coarse-grained measures, which were yeah. po possible with the technology of the time. And now we're looking at much more fine-grained measures, which are also made possible by the currently available technology. Yeah. Now, what I think is actually probably more important, though, in the modern workplace is that there's something perhaps ideologically different about the way in which uh, work and workplace management takes place. And I think this is something you, you bring out a lot in your work. So you mentioned this earlier, which we've moved into this kind of agile phase of workplace management. So talk a bit about that. Like, what is this? What is agility? What does that mean in the context of workplace management? And how does that lend itself to a very different ethos or type of tracking and quantification? Well, agile is actually a term that uh, developed in management systems experimentation. Uh, it's linked with high performance, it's linked with um, lean production, and a little bit of the just in time Kaizen. So it's, it's taken uh, elements of other types of systems and, 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 and different ways of designing a workplace, again, for ideal kind of pro outputs and, and productivity and this kind of stuff. The difference with agility, though, is that it really it puts a lot of uh, emphasis on on the worker's own management of the self. So way I look at it, and th there is an entire kind of procedure that, that's put into place when agility is adopted in a workplace. So you have kind of scrums, you have 15-minute uh, meetings in the morning, it's supposed to be really not hierarchical, you've got kind of self-managing team in a way, you've got client as customer um, that's prioritized. The way I talk about agility, though, and the kind of interesting side of it is that, that there's and it's also mentioned in the literature by sort of take it out and emphasize this aspect of it, which is that one has to expect constant, inevitable uh, sort of transformation, change, you know, shifts that, that just are going to happen. So, again, as I was saying earlier, that there's it's almost an unstable environment that that we can't rely on things sort of being the same, having, for example, lifelong employment. So it goes into that kind of domain that you've got um, a new expectation. And so in that context, we've got to manage ourselves. I guess what, what's key here within the, this agile ethos or philosophy is that at least on the face of it it is um well okay let me set this up in a different way okay go ahead so one of the criticisms of you know the classic workplace management philosophy of, of taylor and gilbreth's is yeah. that it 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 very much is de dehumanizing the worker it reduces them to like a cog and a corporate machine mm. uh, they follow very set scripts and processes in order to maximize efficiency mm. And they do so within a workplace environment that is quite rigid and inflexible, I guess. Um, mm. 
you know, the different component parts, they all fit together in a certain way. The, the production line doesn't change that much. Right. Agility is different insofar as, you, okay, we're, we're, you know, we're not going to have a stable workplace environment anymore. Exactly. We need to be dynamic, flexible, and adaptive. Mm. So this actually puts more of a burden on the individual worker to be a dynamic, flexible, agile, adaptive employee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's far more of a focus on self-management. Now, on the face of it, you could look at that as a good thing because it's it's looking at it's treating them as a more autonomous individual who has to take responsibility and control things from themselves rather than being reduced to a, a cog on a corporate machine. But I guess the ultimate yeah. effect is that it's somewhat similar in that they're constantly expected, or maybe it's not similar, but yeah. the, the, the effects on the worker aren't that wonderful because they're under a constant burden or pressure of change. Mm. Mm. And yeah, and so the type of tracking that now takes place is in order it takes place in order to help them manage themselves is much more ubiquitous, I guess, and much more pervasive. Well, it's a good point, and I mean, I think in scientific management, what you had, you know, mind uh, there was the the worker who was meant to be, um, you know, better in terms of thinking, the brain. So, and then you had the kind of the the kind of physical manual labor. So this distinction distinction was made extremely explicit in. Uh, Taylor's work that, you know, you have mental versus manual worker and that there are, are people who are actually, and he, he wrote about this as actually better at doing the kind of manual labor. And in fact, this should not be ever challenged. You, you know, why train? He, 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 he made sort of quite vulgar equivalents to sort of animals in a sense, apes or this kind of stuff. I mean, it's quite an interesting read, um, the scientific kind of uh, management text that he, that he published. But um, in terms of now and the differences in that sense that you've not got such an explicit um, management kind of relationship where, the, you know, the managers are meant to be the, the mental workers and the laborers simply doing their bit um, according to what they're sort of trained into doing, that in fact there's a lot of self-training, uh, self-management preparation for the types of change that I talked about in terms of agility um, in the book. But I guess one one thing I didn't mention, one thing in, in the era of scientific management, that there was a bit of analysis or recognition of of the impact that, for example, fatigue has on a worker, and this was in Gilbreth's work more than Taylor, that they were looking at rest as an, an important component. So what I'm saying in in, in my research now is that, that, okay, so that rest component, that well, the, the, the kind of physical, the sort of self-management as inseparable in terms of how we think and our wellness and our emotions, that's all become kind of bundled up when we are now able to supposedly manage those and, and track them for ourselves. One of the things I talk about, and, and I think this is something that you were planning to to kind of talk about today a little bit, was the affective and emotional aspects of labor because, and how those are, are tracked. Because in that environment of constant, inevitable change and in uh, the requirement for ourselves to be dynamic and transformable, if you will, flexible and that kind of stuff, is that, in, that you know, if, if, if we are in that constant state of flux, then of course, there's going to be an emotional impact. There's going to be something that, that, that you know, in fact, it's potentially anxiety, potentially fear, potentially unsureness. So that's something that now management have told us in a, in a way, abstractedly, if you will, but it's there, that we've got to sort of deal with that in our own ways. And then once that is tracked, my, what I sort of talk about, uh, not necessarily to be paid, as it were. So if we're asked to track emotions in the workplace, or stress, like in the context of of the project I did in the Netherlands, then a management can can identify how likely it is that you'll collapse. How likely is it that 
you will continue to work at the same level of high performance or that, you know, can it be Im improved? In fact, your performance. I also didn't talk very much about the kind of dev culture of work, the really self-optimization and high performance stuff that in fact appeals, I would argue, to sort of a macho male, uh, very masculine sort of environment that where everyone can apparently compete at the same level and all this kind of stuff. So the, the, the kind of self-management for emotional upheaval, as it were, is part of that that agility trend. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, you've kind of moved on to I guess, the next question, which I had, which is so... All right. Let me just maybe draw a line under this uh, point about the ideological differences. So we've we've we moved away from the the classic model of corporate management to this agile model, where the focus is on ensuring that the worker is capable of dealing with anything that we throw at them, in a sense. Or that is thrown. It's very abstracted, in a sense. So management is very interesting. It's sort of taken out of the of the equation. Even though it's talked about, it becomes extremely hard to identify, and especially when we're expected to self-manage. And in a way, maybe it's a technology that that's meant to manage us. Maybe it's the algorithm, you know, in interface management systems uh, like like you see in kind of transportation systems, for example, now like Uber and those platform-based work environments. Yeah, it, it's, it's it's a very interesting moment, I think, in history in that sense, because yeah. it isn't always clear <laughs> who's managing you. <laughs> you know, that that's actually a good point because the way in which I phrased it, Perhaps okay. it makes it sound like it's a, a conspiracy of management or of, of specific managers when that mightn't be what's taking place. It's more just a general trend. And as you pointed out, these agile workplaces tend to be non-hierarchical, at least um, in, in principle. I don't know yeah. if that's always true in practice. Right. Um, Excuse me, yeah. So, yeah, there, there, there isn't this obvious hierarchical management culture or system in place. So the technology itself actually does a lot of the, the management, which, yeah, I mm. think that's a that's an interesting observation. So because you need the workers who are flexible in it and are capable of adapting to whatever is thrown at them, the you have to focus, I guess, on, on the worker in a more holistic sense. So mm -hmm. it's not, not just the physical processes or mental processes of their work, but also the health and well-being of the worker that supports that right. work. And this is then the reason why affect is something that is now trying to be captured and controlled by these software systems or these mm. quantification systems. So you touched upon this already, but just maybe to explain in a little bit more depth, what is affect and why is it so important or significant that this is now being captured and quantified in the workplace? Well, affect is a concept that, uh, well, Spinoza is normally um, given credit for initially talking about it. So the way the affective as well as emotional labor, not the same thing, but it's work that's not immediately seen. It's kind of the work someone does uh, behind the scenes, as it were. Let me give you an example. When you walk into a shop uh, and the person working behind the desk or behind the till smiles at you, welcome, they say. So you, you could argue that that's that's something that's not necessarily paid. This is emotional labor because they're attempting to make me feel happy, me feel something, feel something different. So that that's what's talked about. Arlie Hochschild wrote about this emotional labor, that there's a different aspect. It's not always a scene necessarily uh, output, as it were. I mean, maybe if I smile, but, you know, that could be measured too. And I think when we're looking at the kind of measurement of emotions, which, which is one of the things I talk about in the book, uh, this could be a, a sort of way of of capturing, of of numerating, of of kind of giving a a sort of a value to that emotional labor. Now, affect, and the way I write about, it has to do with, in fact, the the impact that bodies have on other bodies, 
as it were, not always seen again as well. Um, the, the response is there. They're not necessarily cognitive. Um, this is a sort of philosophical way that Spinoza and, and others have written about it. And, and the way that I write is more in terms of the possibilities for resistance that that, that brings about, that there can be a kind of a community aspect where people are brought together, maybe in the physical sense through something that's understood that might not necessarily be um, something immediately recognized. So that's a slightly different way. And affective labor is written about in, in another way again. But but I guess if we focus on the emotional labor side of it, which I think is something and I, I talk about emotional and affective as being unseen labor, that if this is captured, then again, it gives even more of a recognition of how likely it is that someone may or may not sort of collapse, let's say emotionally. So panic or, you know, the kinds of stuff that Franco Berardi writes about, the the sort of psychological, the, the kind of schizophrenia um, of these potential employment relationships where, you know, if we can't actually see a manager, if we don't quite know what, you know, what the future is either, if we can't, if there's a self-management, complete accountability is placed on on the individual, then, you know, the, the affect of the emotional becomes something, something maybe of value in that sense, if there is any kind of employment relationship identifiable. But what I like to say is the the kind of the, the, the emphasis on this, what do I say? Oh, yeah, numer- numeration does not necessarily lead to more remuneration, so to speak. So so in the paper, this is a different paper, actually, where I look at the kind of the, the ways that management, so to speak, captures and tries to track uh, emotional and affective labor, uh, that the rationale there is is very much to look at to what extent somebody cannot cope. But in fact, it, it's something that, that if abstracted, potentially uh, leads to an all-of-life um, method of measurement. Yeah, actually, one thing that I we haven't mentioned so far, but is uh-huh. implicit in this conversation, it's also part of the title of your book, is is the precariousness or precarity right. of work. Yeah. So the way in which we've defined the agile workplace so far, it doesn't necessarily suggest that the employment itself is precarious. It just means that the demands that are placed on the worker are shifting and changing. But the other dimension to this is that employment is much more precarious nowadays. Mm-hmm. So as we shift towards what some people refer to as like the the gig economy or mm. a nation of freelancers or whatever, there is much more of a focus on individual self-management mediated probably, possibly through quantified self-type technologies. Yeah. So we've mentioned this a couple of times already, but mm-hmm. let's talk about it in more detail now. You haven't just looked at this theoretically. You've actually tried to study it in the field Mm-hmm. workplace quantification in in practice so you partnered with a dutch company on a i, I don't know what they called it was it a corporate wellness type program or a, a self- oh you mean well the company itself does real estate and they did an experiment with employees um called the quantified workplace yeah do you want me to tell you about it yeah so what um maybe first of all explain the the, the context in which this study took place and then what did the company do what did they try to track Okay, um, so the company provided Fitbits to up to 50 employees um, and Rescue Time, uh, which is a productivity software that's embedded in the in your computer, um, which you can tailor to identify w- what work on your computer is considered productive or not. Um, so this could be communications, this could be composition, it's a whole range of things. Employees were also asked to answer a daily life log, like a life logging email, where they were asked subjectively about their own productivity, um, and also how they felt. So their kind of wellness and, and this kind of stuff. So 
data was captured over the course of a year um, of employees. And in, the, in that context, so I wasn't exactly a partner. I was the social scientist sitting outside the project funded by British Academy and Leverhulme to, to talk to the employees about their experience of this and to see kind of how it impacted their own sort of sense of specific things. So I outlined it to, I, I, I interviewed them in month three and month eight of the project and also distributed surveys throughout uh, the project to find out specific things. So I asked questions about it, how, you know, obviously what their experience of it was. I was curious to find out uh, whether it uh, would impact their sense of productivity, whether it would impact their actual productivity, which actually is data that I didn't in the end get access to. This is human resources data. Questions about data protection obviously became interesting, important in that in that uh, context. But in terms of what I had access to was predominantly uh, my interviews with employees over the course of the year. Could I so just ask things, yeah, sorry, yeah, just a couple questions there? So um, number one, like, what were the numbers involved here? And also, like how cooperative or resistant were the company to this process? The number of employees up to 50 were invited to accept the the, the Fitbits to, to take on the activity. So I think of on nearly 50 were planning to be involved. I'm in the end, it was around 30. Uh, I was able to interview up to 30 during each of the rounds. One of the difficulties is they were not always the exact same employees who would, I would interview. So how, the way that I managed it to look at responses using NVivo software to get a sense for how it was, what the uptake was. I was also very fortunate that I got to interview uh, the consultants on the project and those in the company leading the project, as well as uh, the director. So I got it to, to understand the rationale for the project was an experiment to see whether, you know, more product, whether better, whether healthier workers, happier workers are more productive. So it was genuinely uh, a kind of something to, 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 to make that, those, that sort of triangulation. And it wasn't, in fact, the company weren't resistant. The company were very excited about it. This project happened in the context of a smaller group, a smaller startup, so to speak, being absorbed by a much bigger multinational corporation. The smaller company uh, developed products were were quite kind of workplace design um, and interior design and human resource focused themselves. So I think it was a very interesting idea to, to launch this project in the context of being merged with this much larger company. And the way that I write about it is, in a way, it allowed for a tracking of individuals' emotional state um, in order for the for the kind of the very sort of upheaval for the upheaval of of being merged into a much larger company and the way that the employees were responding to that because the majority on the project were part of the uh, smaller company, the the SME that was absorbed. So that's the way that I wrote about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so one question I have here, which is probably, I think you hinted at the answer, but I just want to be clear on it, which is, mm-hmm. I mean, was this a volu- this is an entirely voluntary program within the company? You, you, the workers had to sign up to it, or was there some element of, I don't want to, I don't know if I want to use the word compulsion, but um, mm, some sense, some sense of obligation yeah. to do it. Yeah. 
some sense of obligation. Actually, there's research uh, that that's looked at the the kind of the, these questions uh, whether or not you know an employee or someone working in that, in the kind of employment relationship, client based relationship, or any of these types of things. Do they actually have a say? Is there an opt in and opt out um, question mark? So. Yeah. So in this context, workers were very much opting in. People were saying, yes, we'd like to, but there was no necessarily pressure, although there was a launch date, which I was invited to, <clears throat> to speak about my research. And, um, you know, it was kind of all all bells and whistles. The, you know, Fitbits were there on show and, and we watched the film Her, which was shown, um, which, of course, is about an AI uh, lover scenario where it's, you know, the question marks around how is how are the new technologies going to uh, change work today, given all the new possibilities that exist. So those those are the kind of questions. And the consultants were there and spoke and this kind of thing. Nobody told me at the beginning they felt any pressure to join. Research has, has asked questions around whether, you know, there's a stigma effect. If you, you know, you don't join, is there, you know, is this something, you know, that's going to put a question mark over your commitment or loyalty to the company or, or whether, you know, what are your employee, what are your colleagues going to think of you? What I found interesting throughout the course of the project, though, is that people changed in a way on a couple of things. One was that because the, the, the question around privacy and what you're happy for, and in this context, you definitely had managers and, and workers, so the more traditional relationship there. So what are you happy for your manager to see about you? The other maybe interesting side is that that managers were themselves participating in the project. So there was a dashboard uh, set up whereby uh, all could see everyone else's data. So you could anonymize yourself. You could choose who is allowed to see your data and who not. But again, the question mark around, you know, it, what does it mean when your employer can see so many things about yourself, your sleep data, for example, that was something that you could volunteer to 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 track using your Fitbit. Not everyone did. Some people did. But yeah, that, that question about whether you can ever have a consensual relationship with your employer is one that actually feeds into a lot of management uh, data, uh, the kind of debates and literature in that in that area. Yeah. And just one other question then about the, the setup of the study. What, so was the focus on, it was using the Fitbit data to check whether see there was any increase in workplace productivity. Am I, is that the correct? Is that the, the approach they were taking? So it was, it was looking at the health side of things as a driver of uh, the rescue time data. Well, what we didn't have access to was productivity because a lot of the, uh, sorry, I meant revenue generated by an employee. Um, so the idea at the beginning was to make comparisons across how much you're making for the company because a lot of the employees are themselves consultants. So they're kind of working with clients and trying to attract contracts and these kinds of things for the company. So so the links that management told me they were interested in making were, you know, uh, billability um, as well as the well-being. So well-being and well-billing. Uh, was the kind of part of the kind of the rationale in the in the first in the kind of launching of the project. So what I had access to was different. So for me, it was interesting to to speak to uh, employees to see what the impact it you know what impact it made having it something else constantly a technology constantly tracking and measuring your activities. I did find employees told me that their feeling of self awareness um, improved, which was interesting to hear. They're kind of that they were really paying much more attention uh, to movement and and how they would feel if they, well, let's say, got a certain amount of sleep. Sounds really obvious when, you know, on the surface, but it's the kind of 
And that's where I'm interested in the autonomic side. It's when you start to actually make those links yourself uh, much more explicitly, too, with the data that's generated over a period of time, you know, that, that, that you gain a new kind of awareness of your own your own self and your productivity. A different one, though, is privacy. The beginning of the project, and that's linked to what your manager knows about you. Employees were really happy to share everything. There were didn't seem to be nervousness. In fact, one employee said to me, I thought there would be more nervousness around, you know, our, our sort of managers being able to see so many new things about ourselves. By the end of it, this had changed. And that was very interesting because I think employees went into it very open transparency, what could possibly, you know, be wrong with transparency, we're all sharing everything. By the end of it, there was a little bit of pullback and to say, well, hang on, you know, we need to look at why and, you know, why this is happening, what what's what's the kind of um, the intention. And I should also tell you that the project itself was designed in order for the company to say that it, because it had experimented in this way, uh, could potentially themselves design a product. So that brings a different kind of dimension to it that that there's a that people in a way become their own proxy uh, but by the end it was definitely uh, people were telling me that this is something that that they found affected themselves in specific ways i mean in terms of the findings of it so you 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 sent you discovered that a, a growing sense of resistance or skepticism about the merits of the of the initiative over time yeah i think in fact it's different again it's it's that that in fact merits as it were i think people weren't completely clear what that was. And what was interesting to me in speaking to the consultants and, and the project developers was that it was actually designed for people to to create and come up with their own way of using this, as I say, potentially developing product that 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 people would become quite, it, there's the autonomous question there, that people were saying, this is what I want to use it for. Here are my goals. Because that's another thing I asked it, well, in the survey to find out, you know, did people feel they had met their goals? So at the beginning, what goals have you set? And all that kind of stuff. So but I think the pe- there was not a lot of complete comprehension of that, I think, which made it interesting in, in a, even a new way, which is that the merits, of course, the company had its own ideas for that, which seemed to be kind of universally accepted. But then in terms of, of identifying the merits for your own, for yourself, it, that's something I think that, that became a little bit blurred. What was your other question? Um, no, I mean, so that, that was it. It was just more that there was, was there a growing sense of resistance? To oh, the... resistance. Not only was there resistance, people just dropped out. It was a high rate of that. Do, do you know what, what the dropout was roughly? or The dropout rate is in the paper. Oh, gosh. I don't remember. I better find it. It's something like 70%. I'll say that so you can... You can um, I... use it. I'll use it. No, no, I'll say it as though I'm answering your question. <laughs> so the dropout rate was around 70%. Uh, which is relatively high for a project like this. Yeah, with a group of around 50 as well. So uh, it's a fairly small number stayed in it till the end of the year. Correct. Mm. Um, and so the, the so the dropout and resistance, do you have any sense of what that was caused by? Was it mainly the privacy issue or was it a sense that ju- this just wasn't very useful for achieving their own goals or whatever? Yes, that was definitely part of it, the privacy question. And again, there was a sense that people hadn't clocked the the um, that it was very much a self um, management kind of product as it developed, as it were. Um, I think there was confusion around that. That, in fact, I mean, in terms of some of the quotes, for example, uh, just to, to read one for you, it's um, I I couldn't really see the point of it, to be honest. So. It's that 
it, maybe it was the way that it was embedded into a um, into a moment. It, it happened to be in a moment of of change itself for the company, which is the way that I, I think about it. I think that there were it was a transformation process that involved so many other things. Not that it got lost. It didn't necessarily. But there are a couple of things that impacted it, which is that there and and the consultants and management told me this as well, that, that in fact, they probably needed to have another workshop day where uh, people maybe even similar to the quantified self meetups where people talk about their ex- own experiences. Um, but again, I was not a consultant on the project. I was somebody who sat again on the uh, outside of it and 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 was very happy to speak to the employees. And they were very happy and very, very cooperative. I mean, it was one of the best experiences in terms of a research project. But I mean, in terms of developing a product, which is not something that I was part of, I think what one of the things that was identified was that there probably needs to be a bit more of a sharing at that level that, that people would like to probably be a bit more involved in. Yeah. So I think that that probably was what was missing, really. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there may have been a, a, a poor communication around the actual goal and intent of mm. the of the project itself, um, and maybe that led to a, a growing suspicion of it. If the if the ultimate aim was to create a product that the company could sell, then yeah, as well as to identify happier, healthier, more productive workers. So so both, yes. So yes. doing doing both, but I guess. Even if workers bought into the the first one of those, they may not buy into the second. Of, they may they may not like the idea that they are being used as beta testers for a or a research group for a product if they aren't clearly informed of that intent at the outset. So oh yeah, yeah. but the the thing is, they were. I mean, they were, absolutely okay, so. were. I'm wondering there were different things that happened, and in the final set of interviews, one of the things that I I learned was that people felt their work had increased um, in the context of the merger. They felt that that there was much more expectation, a higher workload, which was interesting for me because that's something that I might have even personally predicted because this may or may not happen. But but it's something that people I mean, in terms of, you know, that there, I would have predicted what I'm saying is that I would have predicted that, you know, one of the things because it's extra work to be involved in a project like this that one isn't sure whether one is being paid for so again that's that's one of the paradoxes with talking about quantified self um, in the uh, corporate and management sort of um, scenario is that that again the the supposed self is not necessarily only something that one develops independently it's something with relation to work to your product to who's supposedly um, who's kind of in charge of you whether it's a physical manager or it's an algorithm it, it kind of it changes what self-development can be, as it were, self-optimization at work. Yeah. What about the sense of competitiveness? Uh, you mentioned that <laughs> earlier on. Like, So was there a sense of competitiveness between the workers and was this a negative uh, factor in the project? I would say no. Yeah. Uh, as I said before, I mean, workers, it, it became interesting. They, they queried it in a way. They queried the kind of gamification. They queried... You know, they don't really they didn't see the really the point of of competing, so to speak, on things like how many how many you know kilometers have I run, for example. I mean, they were excited about the steps count in the beginning because that seemed fun. And, you know, that you could you could compete potentially more equally on. But when it got to something like running or physical activity in the weekend, if you're already training for a marathon, what is the point in competing if you're not? So I couldn't I couldn't really see the point. But they they really liked the thing that the employees really, really liked was that it built a sort of a social dimension that people could share, you know, and, and laugh about maybe how many, you know, how how many stair 
cases have you climbed today? How many, you know, uh, flights of stairs or how many steps? They said that 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 kind of disappeared toward the end. One of the reasons why is they didn't trust the, the technology itself to give accurate data. They were pretty sure it was wrong. And that led to a bit of discontent as well, which may have contributed to the high rate of, of dropout. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think actually the inaccuracy of the data is an important point and uh, mm-hmm. something that's often glossed over in at least the kinds of conversations I have, which are often more about the implications or consequences of the, of the technology, assuming it does work. But yeah, I think the fact that it may give inaccurate data and how that might feed into a sense of, oh, well, I'm not really getting anything out of this and the leaderboards or competitive element of it is, is misleading as a result because uh, the information is inaccurate. I think it's mm-hmm. important to bear that in mind. Um, it's important to some extent, but oh no, don't worry. It, inaccuracy of data is an issue. Um, this, I would argue, is is down to to what extent that is important for the user, because it depends on how much of a granular level you want to um, analyze your data. And to some extent, and I come across this at the quantified self um, events that I attend. It depends on your level, sometimes of expertise uh, and interest in. That, that component, because I think in the way that the devices are marketed as well, is very much because it is about self-improvement and development, that there has to be a trade-off, that there has to be a relationship. And I think that's something I could argue is part of potentially the dropout rate for from the product project that I looked at in the Netherlands is that it wasn't entirely clear that it, it, it wasn't necessarily that data has to be precisely accurate, so to speak, because when you get data over the course of a year, if there are a couple of hours that aren't absolutely correct, if there are a couple of minutes that that sort of are, you know, we didn't have, let's say, wireless connection here, and this is something that relies on this or that. It's more that it's a pattern that develops and making the links between one thing, the other thing, the other thing. It's, so it's a meta-analysis, I think, for me, is more interesting, important. For example, if you're saying that, you know, stress is a result of my, I, I can identify for myself that stress is when my heart rate increases may not be the same for absolutely everyone. But if I look at over time, the course of an entire year, let's say I had an interview with John Danaher one day and my heart rate happened to be higher. Was I stressed out? Was I not? Did I think I was? Or what did I not? So I could be, let's say, filling in a, a spreadsheet that says today I felt stressed or I didn't. Then I could link that to my to my actual heart rate data. So it's making that link about subjectivity, supposed objectivity that, that combines things in a way that doesn't really matter whether or not there's inaccuracy of a computer, we know that they fail. It's more the patterns that emerge and what we can know, what we can get to know about ourselves, or in the case of management, about ourselves, what can be known. Yeah, let me conclude with a, the, the bigger picture here. So yep. one interpretation of this is that this trend is is very insidious and concerning. I think, you know, uh, Dave Egger's novel, The Circle, sort of brings this out, the, the fears <laughs> yep. around corporate tracking and the yeah, tracking and, and quantification in the workplace. And I think I mentioned to you before that I, I feel much more comfortable with uh, the traditional management to employer relationship where the manager just cares about me in a limited sense. They don't care about my private life. They don't care about what I do at weekends. Whereas this seems to be more like a totalizing corporate culture that they care about everything that I do, including how much sleep I'm getting and how many steps I'm taking and miles I'm running. So, yeah, like, is this something that we should be resisting? This is something that is disturbing and concerning. Can okay. we resist it? These are the big questions, I guess, yeah. 
Well, one thing I say in my New Media and Society paper with Andrew Robinson is that refusing to share data is becoming a political act, which may sound interesting because, you know, might just sort of reactively would say, of course, we don't have to share anything. Um, but because, as you say, like in the novel, it's the circle where you really will be excluded from society if you don't. Uh, remember the, the original, the early days of having a mobile phone. Some people would not have one. And, and soon you started to resent those people because they used your mobile phone to contact friends, etc. Will it be the case that, let's say, if you're not on Facebook, you don't exist or that you're using other people that you're relying on, you know, other people. Now, of course, the new technologies require us to share a lot more information. Of course, this can be commoditized. It can be, you know, um, given, you know, the profit uh, that's made that we're not really gaining from um, by the products, by the companies that are um, that, that own the product. But in terms of the future of, of workplace, um, I'd argue that, that well, what's already, what is already happening is there's a lot of regulation potentially happening. And this might be, you know, whether your employer is allowed to see health data or medical data, those are being um, defined and, uh, and kind of explored in the different uh, contexts in the US, for example. Um, so heart rate data uh, is not, should not be accessible for your employer, but steps is a little bit less difficult because they're not, you know, medical and health data are not identical. So there's already some regulation and there's discussion around uh, what could be shared and what, what shouldn't be. In terms of my Dutch project, actually it made headline news for a couple of days uh, because the, the company managed to put some questions on, into the kind of political debate, uh, which are, you know, exactly that question, what what are what are people happy with their, their bosses knowing? I think it has to be a relationship that's fully com communicative. Um, it has to be something that, you know, that I would argue each corporation needs um, uh, data sharing policy. Um, so regulation is definitely on the agenda. In terms of people's individual resistance, again, it has to be something you're comfortable with. Uh, and it has to be a dialogue between, you know, who's asking you to use, uh, let's say, a device or providing it for you. It has to be a dialogue. HR, trade unions should be involved, social partners. And I think that's what the future holds is is better communication and and hopefully uh, mutual uh, kind of gain, really. So are you an optimist or a pessimist around the future of this? I mean, I've made my name by being one to mention the dark side, the elephant in the room, to talk about the, the, the risks and the dangers. What I see happening, and I think it's happening also in, let's say, platform work, uh, where, again, People are starting to, to push back citizens, a kind of everyday forms of resistance. People deleting their Uber app, for example, is one form of of highly um, algorithm, highly kind of technologized, digitalized a workspace where questions around, you know, what can be consented are, are very prescient. Uh, so I think that's where we're going with it, is that the public debate is intensifying. People are becoming increasingly aware of what's at stake. I think it's just a case of keeping oneself informed and keeping communication and dialogue uh, and looking at what's at stake for our livelihood, really. Okay. Um, I'd just like to thank you again for joining me for this conversation. Hmm. Thanks a lot, John. It was great to talk to you.